Welcome to Short Stack Stories. I'm Liv. And I'm Jackie. And this week, we went a bit off book. No pun intended. As we begin to wrap up our first season of Short Stack, we wanted to give y'all a little bonus episode. Today, we dedicated this episode to the one, the only, Notorious RBG. Yep. This week, we are diving into the life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, pioneer of women and law. Since her passing just a couple weeks ago, RBG remains one of the most important lawyers, judges, and overall historical figures of this century. And Liv and I thought we'd take a little detour to explore her life and the impact she has made on ours. Yes, so sit back, grab your prunes, do a couple RBG push-ups, grab your passion for social justice, and enjoy our Short Stack Story. of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Let's do this. I apologize, disclaimer, if you hear some construction going on in the background. It's... It adds to the ambiance <laughs> of a mallet oh. banging in a courtroom. Yes. Joan Ruth Bader, is a judge, as you can hear, <laughs> was born <laughs> on March 15th, 1933 in Brooklyn. Um, She was the second daughter to Nathan and Cecilia Bader. Nathan, her father, was a fur trader, and I believe he manufactured certain things made of fur, and her mother was a bookkeeper. They were a hardworking, lower-income Jewish household. Although neither of her parents attended college, as a child she was raised on the value of independence and a good education, which was especially reinforced by Ruth's mother, who was a huge influence on her life. Um, Cecilia Bader did not attend college, as aforementioned, but she decided to work in a garment factory to help finance the college education of her brother instead, which breaks my heart and also inspires me so much. According to History.com, this act of love and selflessness forever stuck with Ruth, she vowed to learn as much as she could to honor her mother. She attended James Madison High School, um, and she zoomed through school with high grades. She participated in a plethora of extracurricular activities, like cheerleading, which I think is just Ooh. so awesome because we know that ba- you know we know Ruth is like teeny little old woman, and I'm just imagining her flying through the air <laughs> in her yeah, as an old I woman. I love that for her. I love I that for her. And in a way, it already like kind of pioneers the gender challenge where, you know, we've got this stereotype of a cheerleader who's dumb and uneducated. And of course, she defied all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, she's a hero. She actually <laughs> began to go by her middle name, Ruth, so that she wouldn't be confused with the other students named Joan. So wow. on her fa- fact, that. her real name is Joan. Same with the C.S. Lewis thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, I'm just surprised I didn't come across anything in my my research deep dive, but that's... Well, she's the notorious RBG. Yeah. Always will be Ruth. Um, okay. Although her friends used to call her Kiki. <laughs> oh, I like that. I'm a little Kiki. Why? <laughs> I, don't, I actually don't know. That's what I was trying to find. Kiki, I don't know, <laughs> but we love Kiki. Um, and according to the CNN documentary titled RBG... One of Ruth's favorite pastimes with friends was jumping onto and climbing the roofs of garages in her neighborhood. Wow. <laughs> she talked about like jumping over the doors and just, I just imagine this woman flying, just flying through the air as a cheerleader, flying through the roofs of Brooklyn. Well, this makes sense because as we'll talk later, like she stayed fit. Oh yeah. Even till she, she was in her 80s. Oh, yeah. like. Yes, she was a so cool. fit. She was a fit woman. Ruth's mother was a huge influence on her life. Um, unfortunately, Ruth's mom struggled with cancer throughout her high school years. Um, in fact, the day before her graduation, Cecilia mm-hmm. died, which was a loss that Ruth carried through with her her whole life. She impressed upon her daughter 
a love for reading, a passion for piano, and an importance for education and paving one's own way in life. A quote that I've got here from RBG herself, Mum had two lessons, be a lady and be independent. Be a lady meant don't be overcome by useless emotions like anger, and by independent she meant it would be fine if you met Prince Charming and lived happily ever after, but be able to fend for yourself, mm. <laughs> which is yeah. great. Yeah, in that uh, podcast that you sent me that I listened to, they talk about yes, which that a link. lot, actually. Mm-hmm of how it's like interesting you know what does it mean be a lady be a lady but the intention behind i think like obviously what her mother was trying to ingrain in her is to don't act on emotion alone you Mm -hmm. know like be a lady as in don't you know scream and fight and whatever to get your point across like keep like it's much stronger to not let useless emotion overcome you Mm mm-hmm to really like have a clear head and get your points across. When it came to intellect, um, RBG's mother was no joke. Although she never attended higher education, Ruth said that the only thing really setting her apart from her mother is only one generation. Like essentially just implying that her parents weren't afforded the opportunity for education, but her parents paved the way for her generation to receive what they deserved um, in terms of education and in terms of knowledge and intellect. So I just find that so inspiring. I I find it just so beautiful that she carried her mother throughout everything that she did, even leading up to her death. Her mom, even though she died when she was a teenager, stayed with her and that's really beautiful. And Mm -hmm. she was an amazing inspiration. Um, She got a full ride to Cornell after graduating James Madison High School. Um, And women had very small voices and considerations on campus. At the time, there were four men to every one woman at the school. And another quote that I love from RBG is um, in her words, so for parents, Cornell was the ideal place to send a girl. If she couldn't find her man there, she was hopeless. Yeah. My first semester at Cornell, I never did a repeat date. <laughs> yes, yes, I love that. Her first year at Cornell, she met her husband, Marty Ginsburg. Um, mm. He would eventually become a nationally accoladed tax attorney, and mm-hmm. he always supported everything she did as a scholar and as a woman. Um, she loved him for the fact that he never felt threatened by her intellect or her brains. He always encouraged her, he challenged her, um, and this was when women typically suppressed their brains around men. Um, he yeah. was he was the life of the party and she was the quiet one. They made a very even match. And oh my gosh, it is a treat to see Ruth blush about her husband in interviews whenever his name is mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> Just every time they bring up Marty, no matter, you know, how long they've been married ruth just blushes like a little girl and it is just the sweetest thing ever they had 53 years of happy marriage and yeah signed sealed delivered (laughs) we're just riffing on last week's episode (laughs) i know but it's in this case it's so beautiful because you know they they uplifted each other and pushed each other yeah absolutely and I think another really inspiring element of it is, you know, Ruth herself paved the way for women's equality. And in a time, you know, before her time, you know, she's living in her early 20s, she's going to Harvard Law School, she's at the very beginning of the change. She's found a partner who is a man who supports her and sees her ideals before it's even more widely accepted in America, which Mm -hmm. is just so beautiful. You know, it, it... is so inspiring that she found a partner that was supportive of her as opposed to having to court men who throughout her life who may not have you know um i love that we find this and he says too that he you know saw me for me but he also saw me for my mind Mm -hmm. like he acknowledged her intelligence and one and appreciated her intelligence Mm -hmm. yeah um So, to their time at Harvard, 
At the time, Harvard Law School only let women in um, in the late 19th and 20th century, even though they had, even if the women had practiced law before. In fact, Harvard was actually the last law school to admit women at all. Um, the populace wow. of school was overwhelmingly white and male. And there's this notorious dinner, um, which, you know, at this point, RBG is in school where the very few women had to assemble at this dinner held by the head of the law school um, and essentially defend why they deserved a place in the law school over a man. And we're going to insert here a little bit of a clip of what Ruth said when it was her turn to speak, so listen up. Disclaimer, this clip is actually from the recent movie On the Basis of Sex, which depicts the true life of Ruth Bader and captures this moment in a fantastic way. I'm Ruth Ginsburg from Brooklyn. And why are you here, Miss Ginsburg? Uh, Mrs. Ginsburg, actually. My husband Marty is in the second year class. I'm at Harvard to learn more about his work so I can be a more patient and understanding wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's so... She's just Unreal. So I, I know everything she does and everybody listens to her, which is just yeah. amazing. And the fact that she made all the other women laugh and feel comfortable at this dinner. Mm -hmm. And oh, she's just, just so great. tiny woman who's... Like a reserved woman, no small talk. Mm. Small talk does oh, not yeah. exist. It's she was just, a solemn woman. She's a serious person. And mm -hmm. so for her to just drop these like witty it's not even she's not even trying to be witty, that's the thing. So at this point, Ruth is in her twenties and she and Marty are married. They got married while they were still in Carnell. 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 They had a daughter um, in the early years of their attendance at law school. So they're both at Harvard. Um, mm -hmm. Around this time, Marty did get sick with cancer um, and he's attending this crazy radiation treatment um, and it majorly hindered his ability to, end, to attend class. Um, so RBG took care of their baby daughter as well as Marty. Um, she collected and gathered all of his schoolwork and notes so that he wouldn't fall behind. So essentially teaching her husband what he should be learning. She did her own yeah. she she did her own schoolwork. And at and the time Oh my gosh. And at the time was um, doing 40 hours a week of work and reading for the Harvard Law Review. And she was one of the first women to be inducted into the Harvard Law Review, which was at the time determined by good grades. So, of course, she excelled in good grades and everything. And so she became a part of this group that <laughs> reviewed laws. Um, and so she's doing all of this at once. And during this time, she's only getting two hours of sleep a night. Yeah. So I... I'm just floored by her dedication and her perseverance. It's, I can't, I wish, I wish, and I blame, I'm blaming stupid smartphones and Instagram and all of that. It's distracting. I know. The things we can do with time. Ugh. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if only we could, I mean, Reading about all these amazing literary figures just really gets me going because it, it just inspires me to do even a fraction of the work that these individuals did. I mean, diving into someone like Mary Shelley even and the fact that she's yeah. dealing with losing five children throughout her life and yet writing the novel that would that would begin the genre of science fiction at all. I mean, you know, just these women, these women. Um, so she graduates Harvard and of course she's a hotshot lawyer in her own way, although nobody wants to hire her. A good friend right outside of school got her a clerkship with the judge in the Southern District um, and yet now she's trying to enter the private sector of law. 
um, a really great friend and huge advocate of Ruth, Arthur Miller, and another classmate that they, they graduated Harvard Law together. Arthur and a classmate goes to the senior of the law firm that Arthur's now working at, and they start pitching this new hot lawyer, this yeah. new person who is, you know, who was at the Harvard Law Review. She's incredible. And they drop the she word. Yeah. And right away, even though this senior law dude was all on board with this new student that they were, you know, that they were. Until they dropped the pronoun. They dropped the pronoun. And a direct quote from this individual is, you don't understand. We don't hire women. Okay. Um, essentially, Arthur says there were, there were no resources for women. Women would cause personnel problems. Clients wouldn't like it. You know, all these crazy, just BS reasons for not hiring a woman as a lawyer. I mean, as a lawyer in the 70s, her incremental strategy was all about kind of, you know, she began doing cases that specifically focused on sexist problems. So that's kind of her beginnings of this kind of feminist revolutionary lawyer is she obviously knew that this issue was a huge matter to her and so she started tackling these cases um, and her kind of strategy of undoing this crazy system was to kind of take baby steps like knitting a sweater you know she was very attentive to detail she acted almost as a kind of an educator to these men who have right. been upholding these positions yeah. <laughs> for sent you know forever um mm -hmm. and there was like in the film rbg she talks about how she felt like at times she was a kindergarten teacher like mm -hmm. she she felt like she had to educate these men on the issues that were staring them right in the face miller arthur quotes she wasn't asking the court to jump off a cliff she was just asking them to look over the cliff mm -hmm. and that's kind of her strategy and the way that she made a way and paved a way and also re earned respect. And then there yeah, was she this- she knew that if she pushed too hard, then all of a sudden she's like the crazy like feminist lady, you know, if you throw, like these people need to have their hands held. Yeah. And they need to slowly be eased into And the feel cold like they are not water. gonna lose their power. They, they can't have a big shock to the system. Right. So <laughs> and she knew that and she, that's why it eighty seven years of her life was dedicated like uh, I, oh, I can't it's incredible. She's yeah. seriously a superhero. Yeah. And one of her more defining cases in her early career, Frontiero versus Richardson, um, kind of paved the way for this new kind of work for her, this new feminist work. So in this case, a young woman is employed by the military and she's noticing that all of her surrounding male counterparts are being afforded a, a housing allowance and she's not so she kind of goes to the office and she's like hey I think this is just a clerical error hi I don't have this housing allowance but everybody around me does and essentially every single military authoritarian in this situation just laughs in her face and so she decides to you know go against them and bring this case yeah. to them in a time where nice girls don't speak up in a time where mm -hmm. women were not allowed a voice and so this was kind of her be you know rbg's beginning and also this whole big plight into they looking at told her you're lucky we let you in here at all you are exactly lucky the air force allows you to serve right what just what i mean honestly um, and RBG would do a lot of work in terms of military fairness and equality and gender, too. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, this class, I mean, this case eventually came, you know, was presented before the Supreme Court. And, all, you know, she was actually afforded the equal position on a team of two lawyers, two um, defense lawyers on this case. 
And so for the first time, a female lawyer is addressing the Supreme Court. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the scene was described as you could hear a pin drop. You could hear, you know, all, all intention, all kind of sight was on this woman, on, on Ruth. And I've got a quote here. She had the first um, argument and she goes, I was terribly, terribly nervous, but then I looked up at the justices and I thought, I have a captive audience. I knew I was speaking to men who didn't think that there was such a thing as gender-based discrimination. And my job was to tell them it really exists. So yeah, she and so so she did, baby. Um, And they ended up winning that case. So, you know, this is the very beginning. Um, Another sweet thing, she loves the opera. Um, She says the music, drama, and the sound of the human voice. It's like a true current going through me, which I think is so cool. Like she, she loves the drama of the opera and the, you know, the, the human voice is pretty much what she centers her work on. And yeah, she absolutely loved the opera. And then I just want to kind of close my early life section on Ruth before I hand it to you, Jackie, with one of the very favorite things of mine that Ruth said, who's actually quoting um, Sarah Grimke, which a, who is a feminist activist in the 1800s. This quote by Sarah, then spoken by Ruth is, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. So oh, to have the guts to just it. get up and say that yeah. and look them right in the eye is just, yes, <laughs> yes, Ruth. It's so good. Take so good. your feet off our freaking necks. That's I obviously we watched the documentary on Hulu. Mm-hmm. I cr- I cry like five sep. I cry just throughout the whole thing, but like passion tears of like yes. yes. I did too. Like awesome. even just the opening, the opening when they were like this witch, this zombie, this yeah. bitch, and then they're like. Yeah superhero and I'm like already crying like <laughs> the yeah. first five seconds of the movie oh yeah such a good so movie. obviously as we've been saying she led the fight against gender discrimination and she successfully won five out of six landmark cases before Woo. the US Supreme Court um gender discrimination fight she didn't just fight for women but for men so that yep. was a really important and brave thing yeah Mm -hmm. for her to do so which segues into um her case in 1975 weinberger versus weinzenfeld um which is about um Stephen Weinzenfeld and Paula were married in 1970. Stephen's wife had worked as a teacher for five years prior to their marriage and continued teaching after they were married. Her salary was the principal source of the couple's income. Um, so social security was regularly deducted from her salary. And then in, so in 1972, she had passed away um, giving birth. To their, their, to their child, to their son, mm-hmm. um, which left Weisenfeld, Weisenfeld, excuse me, with uh, the care of their newborn son. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he applied for social security benefits for himself and his son, um, he was told he couldn't receive them, that he didn't, but it, he didn't apply for it because the he wasn't security a woman. Act Right, because so the he Social wasn't Security Act provides benefits based on the earnings of a deceased mm-hmm. husband and father that are available to both children and the widow. I just can't even imagine language being used like that. You know what I mean? We live in a time, yeah. thankfully, where there's a lot more liberation and still a lot of oppression. But mm-hmm. the fact that it is written into law, you know, a female, a mother will get this when her husband dies, as opposed to just a human being, a parent, you know? Right. Ugh. Yeah. Stephen brought this, you know, he wanted to file a lawsuit against this because he 
and in interviews he says like child is to be taken care of like we need mm -hmm. to take care of our children he wanted to stay home and take care of his kid he wanted to be a good father mm -hmm. and so god forbid he got some you know benefits from social security because his wife passed away in labor from like the moment this child is on earth he's raising the his son by himself right um and ruth took the case um, obviously. Which was amazing and, because she's yes. defending a man now, you know, like, and this yeah, is still well, in the early was, years of her career. Yeah, and that was really smart of her. And mm -hmm. I, I don't think it was just a tactic thing for her to take it, but it proved that she's not just, she's not trying to say women should have more than men. She's truly fighting for equality. Right. And that so was she's like, I will fight for a man just as much as I'll fight for a woman. Yeah. Because we're fighting for the same thing. And she's proving that there is discrimination based on sex at all. You know, this yes. man wasn't given the social security because he was a man. And like in the adverse effect, it's, you know, most of her fighting was for women to have the same equal rights as men. But in this case, she's straight up just proving that there's discrimination at all. And that's was so important just to like mm -hmm. see, just see the blatant truth in front of their eyes, you know? Yeah. And th it was unanimously won in his favor, which is <laughs> Of course. <laughs> it's like, I feel like these things like, it, peop it also takes a lot of, you know, will and power for people in these situations to speak up and to make that change happen. It's really yeah. important for us to stand up for our rights, which yep. <laughs> we're trying to do all the time. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and you, as you mentioned earlier, she, you know, she knew that she needed to build the idea of equality step by step. Mm -hmm. It wasn't gonna, you know, it was gonna be slow and steady and we have to basically retrain rewire yeah. the synapses in these people's brains yep to have them understand what it is that's going on mm -hmm. um so but, but at the beginning of everything as she was being such a powerful woman at this time and trying to fight for women equality she got a lot of backlash obviously and and i commend her so much and this goes all the way back to what her mother taught her always be a, she never responds with anger mm. she's never yes. going to yell or which is very funny because our president loves to throw temper tantrums every two seconds <laughs> and ruth never needed to raise her voice she yeah. never needed to get angry she never mm -hmm. needed to make a fist or whatever to change and get her point across yeah in fact i i read something about how her granddaughter clara who graduated many years later and i should note that she mm -hmm. graduated finally from a class of harvard law that was 50 percent women yeah. and 50 percent men and she talked about how her her bubba, her grandmother, always taught her that winning an argument is not won by raising your voice because you're shoving people away as opposed to inviting them to your table. Which, yeah. wow, yeah, which just makes a freaking lawyer who doesn't raise their voice. I would love to actually see that. Like, for real. We need women. Okay. Mm. Yeah, she was doing something so important. <laughs> For mm -hmm. American women, whether we knew it or not, like it's, yep. it was so easy to take it for granted. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and she would say jokingly, but not like the ideal number of women in the Supreme Court is nine. Yeah. Why not? It's always been nine white men. What's mm -hmm. so? Why can't we have, like? You know, just you know, one out one Supreme Court of nine women out of out of how many? Hundreds, not hundreds, but like how many men who have dominated the areas? Just yeah, yeah. And then when Ruth accepted Jimmy Carter's appointment to the U.S. Court of Appeals mm -hmm. um, in D.C. in 1980, where she served on the court for 13 years until 93, um, 
people would say, like, ask her, oh, like, how do you commute from New York? Because <laughs> Marty was a tax lawyer. He was a great tax lawyer in New York. So they thought, like, oh, well, they didn't move for her job. Like, well, Marty works <laughs> in New York. Like, they must be, you know. But of course, Marty being the amazing, loving, doting father and husband that he was, like, no, he moved, they moved to D.C. To support her career. Yeah, no, they moved to D.C. And then after, after she served for 13 years is when um, Bill Clinton appointed her to the Supreme Court of the United States. Whoop, whoop. Most people thought she was too old. <laughs> <laughs> of course, so, right off yeah, the bat. So, uh, yeah, people thought that... She was too old. She was shy. She wasn't going to toot her own horn. She wasn't, like, as Bill Clinton in the interviews, he says he had, like, a different choice every week, right? Like, he... (laughs) So, Marty was the one who contacted every single person in his his network. He Hmm. wrote letters. He He lobbied for her, for sure. Yes, he was, He had a certain amount of influence as the prominent tax lawyer. He had... You know, he had ears of rich people, and so he really yeah. did it for her. So devoted, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and then there was, and then finally, you know, um, President Bill Clinton. I keep referring, I'm like, Bill Clinton, President, <laughs> President Clinton. <laughs> he invited her for an interview at the White House, and as I quote him, he says, we were two people having an honest discussion about what's the best way in the moment and for the future to make law. And then he huh. says, within 15 minutes, I decided I was going to name her to the United States Supreme Court. Of course, and a quick she decision. Was the, an easy decision. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, he said, <laughs> we were two people having an honest discussion about what's the best way in the moment and for the future to make law. That's a better... Anyway, but yeah, she was the 107th justice to the United States Supreme Court and the second woman. The second woman. Mm -hmm. Yep. America, the the way has been paved by white supremacist men. We know RBG in our time. We are in 2020, and we know her now. And how many Supreme Court justices came before her. I mean, just come on. Just, oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, And obviously, well, not obviously, that's why we're spitting all these facts. She, um, when she was um, reading her speech or speaking at, I don't know, I'm not, inauguration, or appointment you know, inauguration appointment sure. yes thank you her appointment um she spoke in length about pro-choice and how it's and women's rights to their own body mm. and um i think we should listen to some of her words now yeah I appreciate then during the afternoon session judge ginsburg did something no recent high court nominee has done spoke at length about her support for abortion rights. She had been asked by Senator Hank Brown about her 1970s defense of a woman in the military who was told she would be discharged unless she had an abortion. In that case, we argued three things. One, that this regulation, if you're pregnant, you're out unless you have an abortion. violated the equal protection principle because no man was ordered out of service because he had been the partner in the conception. No man was ordered out of service because he was about to become a father. Yeah, so she is just like a queen. Love her. Yes. Um, segueing into 1996. Olivia, were you born? In, you were born in 96. I was born in 96. Okay, so this the year now we're born. Okay, we we're are born. born. We are alive. 
So the United States brought suit against Virginia and VMI, alleging that the school's male-only admissions policy was unconstitutional as it violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Mm. Um, On appeal from a district court ruling favoring VMI, the Fourth Circuit reversed. It found VMI's admissions policy to be unconstitutional. Virginia uh, Virginia, in response to the Fourth Circuit's reversal proposed to create the Virginia Women's Institution for Leadership, VWIL, as a parallel program for women. Hmm. Um, the two programs were, or the, uh, the two programs would offer subs- um, comparable educational benefits. Um, in the United States appealed to the Supreme Court. So, gotcha. They won, and they that fall. I think it was the following year that they started admitting women. Um, and Ruth's argument in this case is that women are capable to do anything required of by the male students. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did you hear my dog just hack up? Oh. <laughs> she has really bad allergies. <laughs> oh, baby. <laughs> So, um, yeah, and then it wasn't, and then uh, 20 years later, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is speaking at their graduation. Hmm. And at this like military college of, of men, they, they're, they're having her speak at their graduations. <laughs> and some, Such and one a of badass. Yeah, and just, one of the recent them. alumni Love. said that some of her peers would say, uh, I'm not shaking your hand. You know, oh. I'm not shaking your hand. I'm not acknowledging you here wow. as a student. And that's just, and that was recently, you mm-hmm. know, so there's, it's just, <laughs> oh, moving on, because there's just so much. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, she's just like, boom, 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 getting it. Um, and then as she, you know, she's on the Supreme Court now and every day each justice shakes, shakes hands with one another as a, as a respect. Obviously they all have, you know, different views. Some are definitely more liberal, more conservative and every kind of on every point of the spectrum. And this is where she met Justice Antonin Scalia, um, who couldn't be more opposite to Ruth. You know, she's this more like liberal, she wasn't even like, I wouldn't even say she was like, she's this liberal little Jewish lady and Scalia is this big conservative, like Christian man and they couldn't, be further opposites from each other and they became best friends yes like they could not have been more different um but they were professionals she had the ability to compartmentalize her feet like her feelings on the constitution Mm -hmm. and for him as a person she had so much respect for what it meant to be a supreme court justice that She knew that she would be sitting side by side with people that didn't have the same views. But that's what makes America great, right? That we can all have different opinions and different views. So she mm-hmm. was able to respect that. Right. You know, instead of seeing somebody with different views and saying, you're wrong, you're wrong. She knew that pointing your finger and telling somebody that they're wrong just because they don't believe in what you're believing what you believe in isn't the tactic to persuade anyone of anything mm-hmm. she's like no i'm not gonna just spit facts at you i'm gonna take 10 years to slowly implement women equality on everyone you know what i mean right yeah. like she just had so much she had respect for how things are supposed to be done and so she was able to still be best friends with somebody who didn't have the same views as her which i think is like an important thing so important i mean it just adds to all of the 
legitimacy to what she does. You know, she represents yeah. a man in her early career. She makes friends with someone who, her best friend is someone who is conservative and not, I mean, it just adds to just how much of a respectable person and how well-rounded she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there's really no excuse there. Yeah. Um, and now segueing into the Ledbetter versus Goodyear case in that went from 2006 to 07. Um, so Lily Ledbetter was working at Goodyear Tire for over 19 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was getting her low rankings um, in annual performance and salary reviews and low raises relative low raises relative to the other employees mm-hmm. um, so she sued Goodyear for gender discrimination um, in violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 alleging that the company had given her a low salary because of her gender hmm. so she had basically I think she found or saw or something a paper with I'm not sure the logistics, but basically um, her colleagues who were literally doing the same exact job, she was getting significantly less and less bonuses, less raises, etc. So they won this case. Um, Mm -hmm. I think when all was said and done, she got 360,000 from Goodyear. And this is just a small step towards wage equality for men and women because mm-hmm. that's something we're still working on i mean these are all things we're still working on but in 2010 is when marty um died from cancer so he already no. yeah he was sick before when they were just graduated college um and he had radiation and now later in his life I think he was re-diagnosed with cancer. And then on June 27th, 2010, Marty passed away. And here's Ruth reading the letter that he had left her. I found this letter in the drawer next to Marty's bed in the hospital. And it reads, my dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have loved in my life setting aside a bit parents and kids and their kids. And I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell some 56 years ago. It was wrong about 56, it was nearly 60 years. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. I will be in Johns Hopkins Medical Center until Friday, June 25th, I believe. And between then and now, I shall think hard on my remaining health and life and consider on balance the time has come for me to toughen out or to take leave of life because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you a job less. So, um, yeah, so after Marty's death and after an appropriate mourning period, she launched herself back into her work and, you know, working until four o'clock in the morning. And she didn't have Marty there to go in and drag her home and say, Ruth, it's time to come home for dinner. You know, she, I think she needed that distraction and he ultimately Mm -hmm. would have wanted her to be, you know, focusing on what she was passionate about, so. Um, which leads us um, into 2013, the Shelby County versus Holder trial. The 14th Amendment protects every person's right to due process of law. 
the 15th Amendment protects citizens from having their right to vote abridged or denied due to race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Hmm. The 10th Amendment reserves all rights not guaranteed to the federal government to the individual states. Article 4 of the Constitution guarantees the right of self-government for each state. So to make this make sense. Yes. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was enacted as a response to a nearly century-long history of voting discrimination. Obviously, so just to just backtrack very, very briefly, what also, I meant to mention this before and it left my mind, but what also made Scalia and Ruth so different is their um, view on the Constitution. He Mm -hmm. believed in how that the Constitution was set way back when and that's what it was set to be. But Ruth's perspective on the Constitution is she saw how it's supposed to adapt and change, right? Like once Mm -hmm. upon, like we, there was slavery in this country when we had the constitution. Right. So obviously- Things need to change. Things need need to be rewritten and amended, yeah. So um, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was enacted as a response to nearly century long history of voting discrimination. Section five prohibits eligible districts from enacting changes to their election laws and procedures without gaining official authorization. And then section 4B defines the eligible districts as one that had a voting test in place as of November 1st in 1964. Essentially, there's this pre-clearance happening where the pre-clearance for voting is actually regulating and allowing for minorities to vote, right? So there are certain like districts that are intentionally hindering certain communities and certain neighborhoods from voting by restricting their polling locations, by restricting the awareness, etc. Yes. Essentially, We're make it difficult for a minority to vote. Right. And so essentially the the Supreme Court ruled kind of against this pre-clearance which RBG then wrote a dissent about. Yes. Um, she totally disagreed with, you know, they, they, they voted against it because they, you know, said that something, there's some kind of red herring about the data being used was 40 years old or something like that. So there was kind of a, to me at least, it seemed like there was a clerical error as to why the Supreme Court kind of ruled against this preclearance. But Ruth was like, you know, listen, the data is indicating, you know, of course, a profile of people 40 years ago. However, you know, this pre-clearance, this federal pre-clearance allows for districts to give equal opportunity to voters, and that's of all races, of all genders, etc. So she totally disagreed with the ruling there. Yeah. 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 She said something about like, Throwing out this pre-clearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. So, yes. yeah. Pro-voting, pro-all-people voting mm-hmm. of all genders, of all races, etc. Yeah. Yes. Overall equality. You know. For all. So after this case, specifically is when the whole notorious RBG, RBG. Tumblr accounts, <laughs> you can't spell Ruth without truth. Mm. This is when she's become an icon. Tattoos, right. merchandise. She's a rock star. She's a freaking rock star. She's working out when she's 80. That's more she than I work, work out. She work out for like an hour every morning. She does 20 push-ups three times a week. Like, she has a personal trainer. And she's fit. And I love in the interview, somebody's like, 
do you like being like how do you feel being like compared to notorious big like he's a rapper like how do you feel about <laughs> she's like well we have a lot in common oh my and everyone gosh laughs yes. but she's like we're both born and bred in brooklyn new york and there's mm. this huge applause but she people ask her questions like that and expect her to have i feel like one response and she just always surprises people with oh my gosh her genuine responses and it's so flippin adorable and and poignant i mean she, oh. not only does she have her own personality and her own voice but she like people hang on to her every word you know like yeah. i i came across some kind of interview or i think it was in the the documentary about her where like people asked her whether she used a smartphone and she's like, yes, of course I use a smartphone, yeah. but not for yeah. selfies. Like. Yeah, she's like, I don't, but not for selfies. <laughs> um, and she she watches uh, Kate McKinnon on SNL, her impersonation of her, and Ruth's um, reaction to watching it is the, she's la like, she is so amused by it. It's so funny and they're like, oh, or is this, an accurate representation of you she's like not at all <laughs> you know it's just she's so freaking awesome i can't yeah. i can't um then she fell asleep at the state of the union <laughs> <laughs> she's like oh i was tired what are you gonna do um and this is when um people wanted you know we're saying like oh you should retire you should retire when are you gonna retire um and she had already battled cancer once she in 1999 and she had never missed a day she had chemo and she never missed a day on the bench and then 10 years later was diagnosed with pink uh pancreatic cancer yeah um wow. In July 2016, she calls Trump a faker, which <laughs> blew up. It was, everyone was like that, you know, because she's on the Supreme Court. So what it, statement, was, but it was inappropriate. It was unprofessional. But Supreme Court justices are humans and they make mistakes. I mean, and she admitted, you know, she said <laughs> she said, I probably it was something I should that should not have been said. Yeah, you know. but also should have been said at the right, same time. Right, you right. know, the fact that she said it at all, you the know. The one time she ever is, cool, like, out of line is in, it's like, come on. Come she's on. she's out of line towards the most out of line human being on the planet right now. Yes. Like, yeah. calm down. So, what are you going to do? So, two days after Trump was elected, she, um is backstage at the Washington Theater waiting to play the role of the Duchess of Krakenthrope. <gasps> yes. Krakenthrope? Krakenthrope? I think it's Krakenthrope. I, th I just like the way she says it. It's yes. really adorable. At the Kennedy Center. So when they were they were like, we want for the to play the Duchess, we want somebody like who's like in A Washington Duchess. who's oh in gosh. it. So they obviously cast rbg which is the best casting choice ever and she wrote her lines oh yes so and she loves the opera she loves the stage like let's put her on the stage it's, it's so great and then you know again at 83 people urge her to retire so obama could re-elect a new supreme court justice um and her response was i will do this job as long as i can do it full steam and when I can't, that will be the time that I will step down. <laughs> and then September 18th, 2020, at age 87, Justice Ginsburg was laid to rest in Arlington next to her husband, Marty. And she never stopped full steam? Mm-mm. No, she literally did not. And we all know, like, one of her dying wishes was for there to not be another justice nominated to support her or to replace her until a new president was elected so mm -hmm. yep there's a lot of debate going on about that right now but yeah it's really 
I don't know, researching her was really emotional. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it was really important for us to, I know we're kind of, and we're going to get into a little bit of, of some literary work, but mm-hmm. I know we kind of, this is a little bit. Of um, a bonus. It's a little bit of a It's a, bo- it's a bonus. Cause we, but it's I think not so necessarily, important. yeah, it's not necessarily a narrative a narrative podcast like we normally do but with everything that's going on i we you know olivia and i live and i with everything that's going on <laughs> live and i really wanted to honor her memory and mm-hmm. really emphasize everything that she stands for and how much freaking time and energy she put in to get us where we are today and we cannot backtrack Yep. We cannot lose everything that she has fought for yeah. us. Yeah, not at all. She gave us so many rights that we almost don't even know that we have the right to without her. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And these things were d- the the Virginia, uh, um, 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 the <laughs> Shelby County versus Holder was in 2013. Oh my gosh! Honestly. There's, yeah, so, <sighs> rest in peace, Yes. Ruth and Bader thank Ginsburg, you. and let's get into um, the, the preface, preface of yes. her book. Yeah. This is the preface of my own words, written in the words of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. May I tell you, good readers, how this book came to be. In the summer of 2003, Wendy Williams and Mary Harnett visited me in my chambers. They had a proposal. People will write about you, like it or not. We suggest that you name as your official biographers authors you trust. The two of us volunteer for that assignment. Wendy and I were in the same line of business in the 1970s. We were engaged in moving the law in the direction of recognizing women's equal citizenship stature. Wendy was a founder of the San Francisco-based Equal Rights Advocates. I was on the opposite side of the coast as co-founder of the American Civil Liberties Union's Women's Rights Project. We understood and aided each other's public education, legislative, and litigation efforts. Wendy and I remained in close touch when she joined the faculty of Georgetown University Law Center. Mary was an adjunct professor at the Law Center and director of the Center's Women's Law and Public Policy Fellowship Program. Well-traveled, wise, and what the French call sympathetique, Mary seemed to be a fit partner for Wendy in the biographical venture. Without hesitation, I said yes to their proposal. My own words would follow after publication of the biography we anticipated. But as my years on the court mounted, Wendy and Mary thought it best to defer final composition of the biography until my court years neared completion. So we flipped the projected publication order, releasing first the collection now in your hands. Did you always want to be a judge, or more exorbitantly, a Supreme Court justice? School children visiting me at the court, as they do at least weekly, ask me that question more than any other. It is a sign of huge progress made. To today's youth, judgeship as an aspiration for a girl is not at all outlandish. Contrast the ancient days, the fall of 1956 when I entered law school. Women were less than 3% of the legal profession in the United States, and only one woman had ever served on a federal appellate court. Today, about half the nation's law students and more than one-third of our federal judges are women, including three of the nine justices seated on the U.S. Supreme Court bench. Women hold more than 30% of U.S. law school deanships and serve as general counsel to 24% of Fortune 500 companies. In my long life, I have seen great changes. How fortunate I was to be alive and a lawyer for when in the first time in U.S. history it became possible to urge successfully before legislators and courts the equal citizenship stature of women and men as a fundamental constitutional principle. Feminists, caring men among them, had urged just that for generations. Until the late 1960s, however, society was not prepared to heed their plea. 
What enabled me to take part in the effort to free our daughters and sons to achieve whatever their talents equipped them to accomplish with no artificial barriers blocking their way? First, a mother who, by her example, made reading a delight and counseled me constantly to be independent while able to fend for myself whatever fortune might have in store for me. Second, teachers who influenced or encouraged me in my growing up years. At Cornell University, professor of European literature Vladimir Nabokov changed the way I read and the way I write. Words could paint pictures I learned from him. Choosing the right word and the right word order he illustrated could make an enormous difference in conveying an image or an idea. From constitutional law professor Robert E. Cushman and American ideals professor Milton Convitz, I learned of our nation's enduring values, how our Congress was straying from them in the Red Scare years of the 1950s, and how lawyers could remind lawmakers that our Constitution shields the right to think, speak, and write without fear of reprisal from governmental authorities. At Harvard Law School, Professor Benjamin Kaplan was my first and favorite teacher. He used the Socratic method in his civil procedure class always to stimulate, never to wound. Kaplan was the model I tried to follow in my own law teaching years, 1963 through 80. At Columbia Law School, professor of constitutional law and federal courts, Gerald Gunther was determined to place me in a federal court clerkship, despite what was then viewed as a grave impediment. On graduation, I was the mother of a four-year-old child. After heroic efforts, Gunther succeeded in that mission. Another often asked question when I speak in public, do you have some good advice you might share with us? Yes, I do. It comes from my savvy mother-in-law, advice she gave me on my wedding day. In every good marriage, she counseled, it helps someone to be a little deaf. I have followed that advice assiduously, and not only at home through 56 years of a marital partnership. I have employed it as well in every workplace, including the Supreme Court of the United States. When a thoughtless or unkind word is spoken, best tune it out. Reacting in anger or annoyance will not advance one's ability to persuade. Advice from my father-in-law has also served me well. He gave it during my gap years, 1954 through 56, when husband Marty was fulfilling his obligation to the army as an artillery officer at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. By the end of 1954, my pregnancy was confirmed. We looked forward to becoming three in July 1955, but I worried about starting law school the next year with an infant to care for. Father's advice, Ruth, if you don't want to start law school, you have a good reason to resist the undertaking. No one will think the less of you if you make that choice. But if you really want to study law, you will stop worrying and find a way to manage child and school. And so, Marty and I did, by engaging a nanny on school days from 8am until 4pm. Many times after, when the road was rocky, I thought back to father's wisdom, spent no time fretting, and found a way to do what I thought important to get done. Work-life balance is not a term yet coined in the years my children were young. It is aptly descriptive of the time distribution I experienced. My success in law school, I have no doubt, was due in large measure to baby Jane. I attended classes and studied diligently until four in the afternoon. The next hours were Jane's time, spent at the park playing silly games or singing funny songs, reading picture books and A.A. Milne poems, and bathing and feeding her. After Jane's bedtime, I returned to the law books with renewed will. Each part of my life provided respite from the other and gave me a sense of proportion that classmates trained only on law studies lacked. I have had more than a little bit of luck in life, but nothing equals in magnitude to my marriage to Martin D. Ginsburg. I do not have words adequate to describe my super smart, exuberant, ever-loving spouse. He speaks for himself in two selections chosen for this book. Read them and you will see what a special fellow he was. Early on in our marriage, it became clear to him that cooking was not my strong suit. To the everlasting appreciation of our food-loving children, we became four in 1965 when son James was born, Marty made the kitchen his domain and became chef supreme in our home, on loan to friends, even at the court. Marty coached me through the birth of our son. He was the first reader and critic of articles, speeches, and briefs I drafted, and he was at my side constantly, in and out of the hospital during two long bouts with cancer. 
and I betray no secret in reporting that without him I would have not gained a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. Earlier I spoke of great changes I have seen in women's occupations, yet one must acknowledge the still bleak part of the picture. Most people in poverty in the United States and the world over are women and children. Women's earnings here and abroad trail the earnings of men with comparable education and experience. Our workplaces do not adequately accommodate the demands of childbearing and childrearing, and we have yet to devise effective ways to ward off sexual harassment at work and domestic violence in our homes. I am optimistic, however, that movement toward enlistment of the talent of all who compose We the People will continue. As expressed by my brave colleague, the first woman on the Supreme Court of the United States, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. For both men and women, the first step in gaining power is to become visible to others, and then to put on an impressive show. As women achieve power, the barriers will fall. As society sees what women can do, as women see what women can do, there will be more women out there doing things, and we'll all be better off for it. I heartily concur in that expectation. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, July 2016. We love talking about our fellow female activists on this podcast, and we are always looking for suggestions from you all on different authors and, well, other Supreme Court justices if you want to hear more about it. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to think how anyone could follow Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but you do not want to miss next, next week's episode. Oh my gosh, not only is next, next week's episode our last episode of the season, but for the first time in Short Stack history, we will learn about the author's life straight from his mouth. We have our yeah. first guest. <laughs> yeah, very, very fun. So you can message us on Instagram and follow us at shortstackstoriespod to keep up to date with all of our new episodes, and please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Yes, thank you. Tune every other Thursday, and as always, have a story-stacked week. <laughs> <laughs>